Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Welcome to a special crossover edition yes. of Small Doses <laughs> and the ABC Adventures in Black Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Seals, with... I am Desmond Thorne, the host of Adventures in Black Cinema. So, you know, Desmond's <laughs> Adventures in Black Cinema podcast really just shows a lot of love and light and insight to some of your favorite black films and some black films that you may not know. And we here at Smartphone and Black are in full support of this podcast. It is a part of our family. And Desmond is a part of our family because he exemplifies being smart funny and black. And the truth is, I don't feel like we constructively critique black films in a way that we need to, to continue to like advance the craft. I saw that Viola Davis said recently that she feels that critics are a waste of time and no purpose. And I was like, she must not know Desmond Thorne. Yeah. Uh, By the way, have you seen her performance as Michelle Obama? I have not. (sighs) I'm sending you a clip after this. It is, it's something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Desmond also does the You Better Act Award where he hands out an award every week to somebody who better act, honey. And you can check that out exclusively on our Smart, Funny, and Black Patreon. But today we are dedicating this episode. Desmond, please do the honors. Absolutely. Today, we will be taking an adventure in Queens and Queens (laughs) with... Coming to America. Yes! (laughs) My favorite film of all time. Favorite, favorite film of all time. The first time I met you, or the first time I went over to your place in Harlem... Went downstairs the basement. I just saw the VHS like on a pedestal, and I was like, "Ah, "What's this?" (laughs) On a pedestal, y'all. It's very serious. I also have the soundtrack on vinyl. (gasps) It is very real. I have a uh, Prince Akeem bobblehead. Yes, uh, that I found in this like novelty store in Columbus, Ohio, when I was on (laughs) tour with Smart, Funny, and Black in twenty. 2019 like yes. I am I'm always like in search of coming to America memorabilia <laughs> like Adrian Bailon and her husband Israel for my uh birthday two years ago they gave me a signed copy of the coming to America script yes oh I have a question for you about that actually are there any differences in the script that you have versus the finished film Yes, so I have the the thing that they gave me is actually the original script and the finished script. And there are differences. I haven't like perused it like piece by piece, but like there's like uh, dialogue changes. There's like scenes that just didn't make it into the final. And the name was different. I think it was actually, you know what? Let me just get it. Hold on one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it like the quest or something? They got it bound all nice and shit. Look, here That shit is nice as fuck. Yes! <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. Okay, so. I have a first draft. Oh my God. My mic. 
Um, so I have a signed first draft of the script, and then I have the original screenplay that was called The Zamunda Project. The Zamunda Project. Ooh, I love that. That sounds like mystical, you know? <laughs> it does sound kind of Wakandian. Um, but like, let's see. Am I not all that you dreamed of? Ever since I was born, I've been trained to serve you. That was in the original. Yeah. What kind of music do you like? Whatever kind of music you like. But let me just say, <laughs> if I was reading the script, I mean, I'm not saying the script wasn't funny. But, yeah. like, the performances were so beyond. Absolutely. Like, the- absolutely, for sure. Like, I was thinking that when I was watching it through again this time. Just, like, the cast that they were able to assemble for this is just incredible. Like, across the board. Tens, tens, tens across the board. So there's actually a character in the original script named Maurice. Um... Semi is cleaning the grease trap of the grill, scraping vile muck into a bucket with great distaste. Working alongside him is Maurice, an overly, uh, overly eager young man. McDowell's offer a lot of possibilities. I started out doing cleanup just like you, but now, see, I'm washing lettuce. So we know that that role yep. was changed to Louis Anderson. R.I.P. R.I.P. You know, the reason that he was hired was because Paramount mandated that they cast at least one white actor in this movie. So they made a mandate that they had to hire a white... You s- Let me tell you yes. something. Yes. <laughs> People don't truly, truly understand, like, just how literal and blatant the racism is in Hollywood. I think oh, there's sure. this idea that it's like, no, it's like liberal and, you know, it's artists and it's just not that. I mean, there was a movie um, that a black actor did. I won't say his name, but there was like an entire argument with the boardroom. Uh, I mean, with the execs in the room about why he needed to have a white wife and that people would not watch the movie if he didn't have a white wife. What? And this I is mean, like a black superstar. And he was like, well, I'm not doing the movie if I don't have a black wife. And I think some people may not understand why like taking stances like that is important. And it's not necessarily about like being against interracial marriage as much as it's about a number of things. It's about representation. Yes. It's about precedent. It's about even just the idea of not just representation of like having black women on screen, but representation of like having black love on screen. Yes, absolutely. And wanting to tell your fucking story. Like, come on. That is ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and it happens all the time. All the you time. Know? All the time. They interestingly enough, um, the director of this film, Joe Landis, <laughs> came up with the character of Saul in the barbershop because he wanted to clap back at actors doing blackface back in the day. So he's like, how about you play a white Jewish man? How John about that? Landis did that? Yeah. Let me tell you yeah. about John Landis. Yep. I don't know if you've ever watched um, the movies that made us on Netflix, but... No, I've seen parts of it. Bits you need pieces. to. You'll love it. And they do Trading Places. Yes. And, um, so, no, is it Trading Places or Beverly Hills? Was it coming to America? Oh, shit. 
And I mean, also, Joe Landis did give us the Thriller video, so he's... Listen. He's with it. <laughs> listen, I, John Land... Listen, I'm... I feel like, like... So, what made you love this movie? To me... It's honestly the character work in this film is just, it's impeccable. The specificity that they bring to all of the characters they play and make them so memorable. And this also being the first time that Eddie did this on screen. I mean, he did it many times afterwards. And of course, The Nutty Professor and Norbit and all that kind of stuff. But this is the first time in a movie that he did the multiple character thing. And it was, it's, yeah. It was, yeah. And it's so fucking impressive, not only from an acting standpoint, but also from a filmmaking standpoint. The way that they were able to achieve the camera angles and the cuts to make it really seem like all these motherfuckers is in the room together, you know? Side note, <laughs> I was just Googling. It is coming to America that they did on the movies that made us. and by, uh, And John Landis talks about just like, you know, Eddie had become like Eddie by that time. And so yeah. it was just a different dance than when he had different. done like Trading Places. Okay. No, the performances in this movie are, as a comic, like they are just beyond. Um, and to your point, just the way that they were seamlessly written into the movie. It didn't feel yes. like, oh, a performance, a character is happening right now. Exactly. Exactly. It felt like a casted person. Mm-hmm. But still felt like, oh, a character is happening right now. Exactly. Because they come at the perfect time. It's like, they get to New York. They go into the apartment and all that shit. And then they go into this barbershop. And it just feels like they're continuing to open up the world. Mm. With Cuba Gooding Jr. sitting in that seat. Yes. (laughs) This is one of... I, I believe that this is one of the perfect scripts ever. Like, there's no... I've watched it. Another one, by the way, is When Harry Met Sally. I've watched it looking for throwaway lines. There's no line in this movie that serves no purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. Every line either tells a joke or advances the story. Exactly. And it's interesting because Joe Landis wanted to put out a director's cut of the film because he thought that there were pacing issues. And Paramount was like, nah, uh, this movie is too successful. You ain't going to do that. Really? I wonder what the director's cut would have. Me too. Because I... I understand a little bit what he's saying in terms of like a comedy in that in the beginning, they do spend like a lot of time in Zamunda, like setting things up. But I think like you said, it feels necessary. And they also do a really good job of setting up Zamunda from a filmmaking standpoint. The production design is on fleek. The costumes are on fleek. You just get it like instantly, you know? You're there. And by the way, if you really look close, like it's not even like the costumes are like, like they don't look super expensive. Like if you look at the Prince of Zamunda's crown, it's literally like rocks glued yes. to the crown. <laughs> yeah. You know, like when they go outside and he's like, hello, Babar. Like they're, yeah. they're, they're on just like a patch of grass. Like it's yeah, not, literally. you know, I mean, it's very, um, it's, but it's also done in a meticulous way so that. You don't need the pageantry 
You, you just need the sh- and again, I can't stress this enough. It's shot in a way that is funny. Like just even the fact that when they go to the table, and yes. <laughs> he's all the way at the end of the table. You know <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I feel like I am like I feel like I am um, usurping the format of, of adventures in black cinema. So please take it away. <laughs> yeah. So something that we do. Whenever I have a guest on the show, before we get into the nitty gritty of the film, is play a game called Who's Invited. Okay. So Who's Invited is a game in which I go down a list of black films directed by white people, and I leave it up to you, my guest, to decide whether this film that I just said gets invited to the cookout or nah. Okay. And, you know, we don't play this game to give white people a pat on the back for doing the bare minimum of making a black film. We do this to raise awareness of the fact that there are so many black films Mm -hmm. directed by white people. Mm -hmm. And when we see a film, we see ourselves and our lives and our experiences reflected back at us. So it's important to know who's handling the shit. 1,000%. So, this is a game that takes place over the course of a minute, so it's a very rapid fire. But before we get into it, I'm going to do a little practice round with you. I'll throw three movies at you. Okay. So, uh, Beloved. Oh, I forgot to tell you. So, in order to accept the movie into the cookout, if you think it gets invited, you say, yes, sir. And if you don't think it gets invited, you say the famous line from Friday, bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia. Okay, um, beloved. So there were people that were upset that Tandy Newton was the lead in Beloved. Some people felt that she was too light skinned. Mm-hmm. Um, some people felt that she was British. <laughs> I personally felt like her being light skinned wasn't necessarily an issue because she is Mm-mm. supposed to be representing the offspring of a slave who had been raped. Exactly. So that made sense to me. Now, yeah. Kimber- if Kimberly Elise had also been light skinned, then we would right. be talking about some other thing. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I do feel like, you know, there were issues that people had in that realm that I didn't consider to be an issue just based on like the actual story. Totally. Now, some, might take issue with what I'm about to say. Ah, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I don't think this was the role for Ms. Winfrey. Um, you know, yeah, totally. I think that she played, you know, I know that she played the role because it was a, um, it was a, a bucket list for her, you know, and totally. that she said that this was a role that she had really wanted to play and she had the money to play it. So it's like, she had the money by all means, you know, whereas like if you see her in um, the Butler, like that feels like a more, I feel like that felt more in her wheelhouse, you know, um, totally. Some have, some have, there's been mixed feelings on Henrietta Lacks, but I was like, you know, this felt wheelhousey and we know that Sophia is a legend oh my god legend legend (laughs) so I will say though I haven't seen the film in like a very 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 long time so I may have to defer word how do you feel do you feel that it's a yezer or a by Felicia 
I think it's a yeser because at the end of the day, I feel as if the director, Jonathan Demme, as a white person, does the best that he can in accepting responsibility and not trying to shy away from the horribleness of white people in that okay. movie. Okay, yep. And also, Kimberly Elise is well, acting Honey. in this movie. Honey. I mean, and that, when you're able to get that kind of performance, like that doesn't come from nowhere. You know, the, exactly. a, a, a director and the right director is what's going to allow for that performance to happen. So I guess we're saying it's a yes or a good shot. Good, yes. Good yes, job, yes, Jonathan yes. Demi. And I forgot to mention... You shall not pass if there's any film you haven't seen or haven't okay. even heard of. You just got to go off the vibes. You just got to go off the, yeah. the feelings. <laughs> okay. um, second example, before we get into the official timed round, a classic, The Wiz. No, who's The Wiz directed by? Sydney Lamette, the director of Dog Day Afternoon. I'm going to say Barbecue. I'm going to yeah. say yes, sir. <laughs> because I, because, and and my reasoning for that is that there's no essence of whiteness in that in any way. Like, I don't feel like there's a water down. I don't feel like there's a, can you do this? I don't feel, on the flip of that, I don't feel like there's a uh, cooning up either. Like, there's no, exactly. I don't feel like there's a dynamite. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Exactly. Ah, sweet. So I'm going to start the timer and we're going to get into the official round. Are you ready? I'm ready to go. All righty. Hidden Figures. By Felicia. (laughs) Now, let me tell you why, though. I actually love the movie. But yeah. the movie is not fictionally, the movie is not accurate. So it's Agreed. like, I love the movie for the performances, but I hate the movie for its attempt to create white saviorism, for yep. its attempt to insert like white favoritism, and yep. for its attempt to make things even better than it was. Because in the real movie, Catherine, I mean, um, Catherine Johnson, in the real life, Catherine Johnson was not able to do the work within the office with those white people. She actually exactly. did have to sit outside. So yes. even, even that was a construct that was made, and some might say it's for dramatic purposes or whatever, but I feel like it would have been far more dramatic for her to have to sit outside. So Honestly. I appreciate the film for its effort to to, to uh, educate us about these women's power in their, in their self-empowerment and in their work, but I can't, I can't rightfully give it access to the barbecue because of its work and also trying to give white people, like, passage that they never had absolutely agreed uh why do fools fall in love oh really Mm -hmm. i think i'm gonna have to give that a yes or i agree uh cb4 who did cb4 uh what's her name she also tamra davis yeah shut up Mm -hmm. well i'm giving that a yes or because cb4 is a whole black fool and (laughs) I just feel like if the director is letting the black people do their black thing, then I'm going to give you a yes, sir. I Because I'm black, y'all. Yes, I'm black, y'all. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I agree. Uh, what's love got to do with it? Wait. 
What was the first one you said after? What was the second one you said? Uh, why do fools fall in love? Oh, I was confusing the two, but I'm going to give it a yes or as I well. Agree. I agree. Uh, I'm a star. Oh, Stephen. Yeah. I'm going to have to say no. I'm going to have to buy Felicia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lady Sings the Blues. I'm going to have to You Shall Not Pass. I have not. <laughs> I have not. I just, I don't know enough. Hotel Rwanda. You know, that's a movie I saw literally one time and I was like, I don't ever have to see it again. Agreed. I'm going to say, though, just like my initial gut was by Felicia, just because it's not Don Cheadle. He can only do so much. But I feel like there's always this like white effort to like cinematographize like black tragedy in a way that it doesn't it does it doesn't. How do I put it? It somehow glossies it up like. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I know there's this like effort of like we're dealing with character, we're dealing with the individual, but I still feel like it ends up losing the reality and the like weight of what is taking place. Yeah, of genocide. That yeah. part. Yeah, <laughs> which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, above the rim. Shut the fuck up. Yes. Who did above the rim? Some white person. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> uh, life. <gasps> who did life that was um was that a john Hughes? was that a uh no it's someone who did another eddie comedy i can't remember his name well i'm gonna say yes sir because i really love the movie life and it's an Me under too. it's an underappreciated film <sighs> agreed um, Oh, yes, Ted Demi. I knew, okay, so Jonathan Demi did, okay, I knew it was the brothers. Okay, yes, Ted Demi. And um, Ted Demi is a legend also for like a number of films. Like Ted Demi did, isn't Ted Demi who did um, Breakfast Club and all those movies? No, that is John Hughes. That's John Hughes. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm, getting, I'm getting the Hughes and the Ted Demi's. Okay. He did um, Beautiful Girls and Blow, and I love the movie Beautiful Girls, by the way. Okay, got it. Last but not least, The Nutty Professor. I mean, honestly, like, that's just like a comedy... It's, it, you know, I think the effort that was being made by Eddie was to not make it a black movie. I think it was like, it, by nature of the cast, it is starring black people. But I think what he wanted to do was to make a movie that was, that had like black comedy and black moments, but that didn't feel like it was race driven. Does that? Totally. Absolutely. That where, makes sense. Whereas like life by nature of a fact that it's about two brothers on a chain gang wrongfully admit wrongfully convicted in Mississippi like it's very much a race movie yeah. nestled Absolutely. in a comedy. Absolutely. So I'm going to give it oh. yes sir. Yes. Awesome. That was great. That was a, that good, was time. Great. That was a good time. <laughs> it's always certain movies are always so surprising like whenever I give people booty call they're like what? And I'm like yeah. 
Yeah, directed by a white person. But you know what? That just speaks to the fact that, like, black directors really, it's it's some new shit in terms of being able yes. to do features. Yes, absolutely. And it's still very, like, not that um, common. It's not. I mean, we look at our first run schedule at the movie theater every week and the number of Black films that are coming out this year on a major scale, the only two I can think of off the top of my head are Nope and Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Well, movies in general, I just feel like I was just saying to... Devon, he was like, you know, we have a movie theater right by the house and we never go. And I'm like, well, first of all, we were in a whole pandemic. But also, (laughs) I'm just like, I don't really feel like I hear about movies that I want to go to a movie theater to see. Like that is, the pandemic has definitely done a number on that. But even even if I'm honest with myself, even before the pandemic, it started to become this scenario where like they don't put out as many movies a year. The movies are typically these like big, 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 big features that are either Marvel based or, you know, some type of like high concept that I'm not really interested in, you know, high concept. I used to think meant like intellectual, like high vibration. And all it means is like as generic as possible. As possible. Literally, literally. Like I saw Endgame in the theater and it was an experience. I'm, I'm definitely glad I went, but ultimately like. I would have me I would have gone to see Dune in a theater. Yeah, that slapped. By nature of just like the grandeur of it. Mhm. But even that like is again, even though Dune is not high concept by nature of like the IP that it's based on, it's still seeking to reach a broad that big, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're trying to make like a very big movie artfully, but it's still like a big fucking movie. It's still like, how can we sell merch? Like, how can we create a whole world out of this? Like, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I miss the rom-com. I miss, I mean, you know, because even if we say like, yeah, but you can still catch those types of films on Netflix, but they're not as good. I personally didn't they're like Don't Look Up. I didn't either. Oh my God. I did not like that movie. And people keep trying to make me feel like I'm crazy for not liking it. Like, oh, you just didn't get it. Is that what it is? No, no. No, I, I'm generally not a fan of his movies. I did not like Vice. I thought Vice was a trash film. I don't re- I didn't even see Vice. Good. Keep it that okay. way. Okay. Keep it that way. So let's get into the nitty-gritty of Coming to America. So as we established, Coming to America was directed by Joe Landis. and it was John released- Landis. Do you know you're saying Joe Landis? It's Joe, isn't it? It's John. John Landis. <laughs> I, was like, is it, is it, I was like, is this a Jersey accent where he says Joan? Like, where he says Joe, John, John, like Joan? John, John, <laughs> John. <laughs> John Landis. I was like, is this Joan Landis? I was like, all right. Yeah, John Landis. Mm-hmm. It was uh, released in 1988. And Amanda, give us a little brief summary of the film. 
So Coming to America is a story about a young man who is coming of age and in his transition into adulthood, traditionally he's supposed to get married, but chooses to take a different route and go to America to find true love without the help of his royal standing. And his father and his mother give him his blessing and he sets out across the sea with his uh, right-hand man and they end up in Queens, New York and antics ensue. As they get settled in, they start working at a restaurant called McDowell's. Uh, it's not to be confused with the Golden Arches. It's the Golden Arcs. Um, they have a sesame seed bun. McDowell's has a poppy seed bun. And they uh, end up, while, while working there, the lead character meets who ends up becoming the love of his life. And we spend the movie watching him pursue her and try to figure out how to gain her interest without utilizing his royal standing. Yes. Beautiful. 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 And as we were saying before, this cast is just... Flawless and incredible. I mean, first of all, I mean, we'll definitely get into the minutia of Eddie and Arsenio, but let's talk about James Earl Jones for a second. James Earl Jones, Madge Sinclair. <laughs> Who, John Amos. Fun facts. They were husband and wife in this movie, and they were also husband and wife in The Lion King. They were. Yes, they were. They were. Because I remember when that happened, and I was like, oh, it's gone! Sarabi and Mufasa. Um, And there's also a great Star Wars reference in this film when James Earl Jones says, uh, do not alert him to my presence. I will uh, find him myself or whatever the exact line is. That's literally from A New Hope. Is it really? I will deal with him myself. I am disgusted at myself for not recognizing that. (laughs) Do you mean my two worlds collided and I didn't even know? Collided. Oh my God, Baby Yoda is just Ah. so offended. (laughs) Uh, And John Amos, as you were saying, so good. Just. But these are all like black actors who were already legends by the time they were in this film. Exactly. So that's the other part that was always intriguing to me. Like they, they were able to stack this film with so many greats. Um, I mean, then you have like the little like pockets, like Jarcel Beauvoir, you know, exactly. is in, she's one of the flower bearers. And then you have like Vanessa Williams, uh, as the, um, wait, no, no, not Vanessa Williams. Um, Calloway. Yes. Vanessa M. Calloway as the, <laughs> the princess promised <laughs> to, yeah. to, uh, Prince Akeem, you know, you have, like you said, there's Louis Anderson, there's Cuba, there's Cuba Gooding Jr. Like, yeah, Ruben Santiago Hudson. I forgot that he was. He's the one. He's the peddler with the watches. Yep. I was like, but and that is someone who became like such a beacon in like black entertainment and everything is in this movie. I'm telling you, it's a legend. It's a, the it's movie. A the movie is legend. And uh, Paul Bates. I yep. honestly, one of our most underrated character actors, that song that he sings. <laughs> She's your queen to be. I used to come out on stage with that when I was opening for uh, Lupe Fiasco on tour. 
Oh my God, that is so fucking funny. I love how this film has like followed you your entire life and that you use it for all those things. I just, I love that. Listen, I I had a birthday cake with Randy Watson on it for my 35th birthday. And my mom, (laughs) my mom didn't really know what Randy, like what I meant when I said I want a cake with Randy Watson on it. And so it just ended up being some nigga dressed up as Randy Watson for Halloween on my cake. (laughs) That is hilarious. That is, that is high comedy. A mess. I also, uh, Eric LaSalle in this movie as the uh, prince of the Soul Glow Empire. How am I forgetting Eric LaSalle? Yes. Like the he, star of VR. I mean, honestly. And question for you. Do you think he's fine in this movie? Because I think he, I mean, minus the Jerry Carl. Minus the Jerry He's Carl. definitely giving you suavemente. You know, yeah. like he's giving you 80s suave. Like, hmm. Yeah, you know, I bet bet y'all don't play a lot of soccer over there, you know. I I, I don't know about y'all, but I like sports where I can use my hands. (laughs) And uh, a little treat for the audience. Can you sing the uh, Soul Glow song for us? Just let your soul glow. Just let it shine through. Just let your soul glow, baby. Let it all so silky smooth and let it shine through. Just let your soul glow. Soul glow. Incredible. My dog. Incredible. My dog just got up like, ah, that was too much for me. I also forgot about the Vondi Curtis Hall cameo as well. Oh my goodness. I cannot believe it. This is the greatest day of my life. Uh, and I know Bondi Curtis Hall is in a lot of things. Lot of He's things. an actor. He's in so many things. I will always hold him in my heart as the director of Glitter uh, because he... D- he directed Glitter? That's a terrible <laughs> He directed film. Glitter. Yeah. <laughs> he directed Glitter. You know what? Hmm. I commend always. I commend the effort. But that is yeah. not a good movie. <laughs> it's not. Um, so I have a question for you, Amanda. Um, what was your first experience seeing this film? Do you remember how old you were, where you were? You know, really take us there if you can. So that's the thing. This is one of those movies that, like, I never, like, I can tell you exactly when I saw Boys in the Hood. I cannot tell you when I saw <laughs> Coming to America. Like, it just feels like yeah. it was always. Just in my world. Yeah. Because I also feel like I remember just seeing it on TV all the time. Exactly. As well. Like, so even after I had possibly seen it in a movie theater, because I don't remember if I did, I would have been young. Because it came out, what, 88? Yeah. So I would have been seven. Um but don't get it twisted. My mom used to take me to shit that was inappropriate. So <laughs> being seven wouldn't have been the thing. But I just feel like Coming to America is one of these movies that came into my world and it never left. And I just yeah. became an expert and obsessed with it. And yeah, I think that even early on, just as a perfor- like as a kid who performed... Like, it spoke to me on a basic level in that way, right? And then over time, it was like, oh, I could get some of the more adult jokes. And then, 
I know that this may sound kind of corny, but like the same way that like a good song just like stays with you and you just like learn the lyrics, like that's what a good script is for me. And this is one of those movies where like it just stayed with me. Like there's lines from this movie that I can recite like lyrics. Absolutely. (laughs) You know him as Joe the Policeman from the What's Going Down episode of That's My Mama. Give it up for Jackson (laughs) Vice Home. Randy Watson. Like, why do I know that whole line? Yes, like that's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. So, so I wish that I, I wish I could tell you like the pinpoint of interest, but I think it's more so just been a mainstay, and it has just the love for it has never. You know, there's pro- there's stuff that you saw when you were younger that as you've gotten older, you still appreciate it, but you may not have like the same attachment to it. Coming totally. to America is one of those movies that like the nostalgia not only grows but like my appreciation for it another one by the way bonus house party yes honestly oh it's so good i just showed that at nighthawk in march and seeing that in a movie theater on a 35 millimeter print was next level can you tell my listeners about what you do at the movie theater Yeah, yeah. So I'm a film programmer at Nighthawk Cinema in Brooklyn. And essentially what I do as a film programmer is program repertory films, which are films that are not first run, which means they're older. So what we do is we put these films into various series, either like monthly series, like Adventures in Black Cinema. I'll do a screening every single month. And then there's also things that will like be just for a month. Like, we did a series on Ruth Carter in February. I'm doing a series called Be Gay, Do Crime for uh, Pride Month, which is going to be a lot of fun. So we basically try to, in the things that are encapsulated within a month, try to figure out, like, what's happening? What's coming out that's a first run that we can kind of, like, expand upon? Doctor Strange is coming out in May. So we're doing a whole program of great comic book adaptations that don't have shit to do with the Avengers. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm showing Blade. I'm showing Dick Tracy. I'm showing Sin City. I'm Mm. showing um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, Watchmen. Doing all that kind of stuff. I was waiting for Watchmen. I was waiting for Watchmen. Oh, hell yeah. So it's, it's a really fun job. It's a lot of... Doing introductions for films, which I love to do, doing Q&As, and just basically picking films that as long as the distributor lets us have them, then we can show them. (laughs) So people are able to come out. So just remind people once again, like, how often it is and how they can come see. Absolutely. So we do Adventures in Black Cinema every single month. We do it every second Wednesday at Nighthawk Cinema. And we have two locations. We have a Prospect Park location and we have a Williamsburg location. I mostly do Adventures in Black Cinema at the Prospect Park location. And you can always find tickets on NighthawkCinema.com. And that's night spelled N-I-T-E. Because we're trying to be cute, you know? (laughs) We're trying to be real cute. (laughs) But um, definitely wanting to show a print of Coming to America next year because it'll be its 35th anniversary. Well, so let me tell you, um, I was originally going to do a smart... I was originally going to do a Smart, Funny, and Black Festival at the Kennedy Center in the summer of 2020. And then there was a little um, thing called the pandemic. And so I ended up not being able to do it. And but my original vision was to do a reading of Coming to America. Uh, and I wanted to have a band. 
friend and like I wanted to do a reading of Coming to America. And so I'm glad that you're reminding me that it's the 30th, 35th anniversary because I need to start yeah. planning now. Now. For that. Because that, um, I feel like I need to do like a whole thing, even though I have nothing to do with the film. Like I'm not in the <laughs> film. I'm not, I don't have a deal at Paramount. But I feel like, it's just like, can I just be at the helm of this? Yes. I mean, that would be so much fun because... You as a comedian and an actor do so much character work. Like, people are always so surprised to know that you are nothing like Tiffany on Insecure. And when we started working together on Things I Learned This Week, that was something that we did so often. We're just like, okay, so what character can this be? Like, who can you be? What do you have, you know? And (laughs) I find that to be such a great connection with this film in terms of the character work. So how would you say this film influenced you as a performer in that sense and as a writer? Well, I can tell you that specifically as a writer, it makes me, because writing scripts is fairly new for me in this, in the space of like screenplay, right? Like, I mean, I've written one woman shows, I've written poems, I've written a whole book, but screenplay is its own dance. And even though I wrote, um, my web series, Get Your Life, like I, that was still like my first foray into that space. I'm currently writing my pilot for Amanda Seals is Difficult. And this movie always ends up again alongside When Harry Met Sally in terms of being this like benchmark for me going back to like, what does dynamic dialogue really look like? Like, totally. And like, if I'm saying the dialogue out loud, like, does it still have pace? Like, is it serving those two rules that I said where it's like, is this line either funny or does it advance the story? And if it doesn't do one of those two things, then for me, like, that's my metric on it needs to be chopped. Yeah, that's that chop. Chop. And I love one of the, one of my favorite things that I used to do all the time that I really want to get back into is reading a script of the film that you know and, like, reverse engineering it. Yeah. Like, I need to it's do that. the best. That's, like, what people tell you is the real way that you learn. Like, reverse engineering, yeah. like, being able to identify, like, what's the denouement? What's the exposition? Like, what's the mm-hmm. what's the hero's fail? Like, you know. Yeah. I started to do that with When Harry Met Sally. I, I actually have... Um, a concept that I had been working on that like, it's like every scene is inspired by when Harry met Sally. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But ultimately, those that's like how it's affected me with writing. And as a performer, you know, it just always reminds you like break out the box. Like, yes. Come up with something and just like lean into it all the way. And I think that's yes. what I really, really, really loved about them doing character work was that they leaned in yes like all the way all the way (laughs) and then even when they were playing their main characters they found dimension in that so for instance my favorite example um of my favorite example of that is when they're in this in the restaurant and the guy and Samuel Jackson. We forgot about Sam Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> we forgot about Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson comes in and he is gonna and he's robbing the place. You know, give it the money out, but I'll blow your brains out. And these two guys who we've been watching be pretty bumbling. They're not idiots, but they're just you know trying to figure it out. All of a sudden, yeah. They, you know, the African connection. Um, yes. So they, they lock in 
And yeah. we see this whole other side of them. Freeze you, disease, yeah. freeze you disease right now, just rest pizzle. Um, <laughs> and that is such a great callback to the beginning when they are yes. training. That's good writing. Yes. That's we, great writing. It's backed up. That doesn't come from nowhere. nowhere. We see that this is what they do, which is why they're able to just pull it out, which is why they're able to just tap into it. You mean to tell me that if you had if you had a wife with a, with breasts the size of a cassava melon, you would give that up to go find somebody that you've never even met? Yes. <laughs> but it's tradition. Yes, Simi, but the tradition is, wait, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, yes, but the thing about tradition is that it can and always does change. Mm-hmm. Yes. Amen. And that's a word. That's like a proverb. That is literally Facts. a proverb. Um, and out of the characters that Eddie and Arsenio get to play, oh. who are your favorites? Come on. Come on. Man, I remember one time I was walking on the street, Martin Luther King pushed me in my face. I said, Dr. King. Man, you ain't never met no Martin Luther King. Yes, I did. No, you did not. Yes, I did. Push my face. I said, Dr. King. He said, oh, I thought you were somebody else. Man, you ain't never met no Martin Luther King. Yes, I did. No, you did not. That shit is so fucking funny. That, that shit is that so right fucking there, funny. You ain't never met no Martin Luther King. Yes, I did. No, you did not. Yes, I did. Fuck you, fuck you, and fuck you. Who's next? Like the fact that that's our introduction. Like that's our introduction. Yes. Let me tell you the other thing too about this movie that stands in my mind is the dialogue is natural and simultaneously iconic. Yes, it has a rhythm and it's natural. But yet you get these lines. What is that? Velvet? Fuck you, fuck Mm -hmm. you, fuck you. Who's next? You know, like, uh, uh huh. Sharice, not everybody. Sharice, not everybody agrees with you. Yes, they do. They just don't admit it. Mm. Like <laughs> in the face, in the face. Like I, there are lines that are like that I know just because I've seen the movie so many times. But then there really are just like like there are so many iconic lines. Like the boy yeah. has got his own money, and I mean he literally <laughs> has got his own money. You know, like. <laughs> And that's just, to me, the true telling of, like, why this is such an iconic film and such an iconic script. Because the dialogue is just, it's its own, oh, man, I, I don't know. I'm just obsessed with it. <laughs> I think, too, it's um, it's really interesting that you remember so much of it. Not only because you've seen it so many times, but because it has that rhythm to it. You know, it has that specificity. You can't, it's really hard to remember a good song if it don't got a good rhythm to it, you know? Like, it's really hard. So the fact that this movie is so specific, yet has a kind of natural rhythm that one can fall into, it just makes it really seep into the bones Absolutely, easily. Like, you genuinely... You remember, like, you you remember because it's, it's like, you, it's rhythmic, yes. Yes. It's like a song. <laughs> I mm-hmm. think that my two favorite iterations of Eddie and Arsenio are The Pastor mm-hmm. <laughs> and oh. Randy Watson. <laughs> I mean, listen, listen. <laughs> 
Randy Watson. <laughs> I performed that scene on stage at Smart Funny in Black like all the time. Yes. Like we'll start singing like I believe the children are our future. And like people think that we're like about to sing the song. The Whitney. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's like, no, no. This is about to be. <laughs> I believe the children are our future. <laughs> well, we have to get that sexual chocolate. Let them lead the way. Sexual chocolate. <laughs> sexual chocolate. Come on, yo. <laughs> Um, and one actor that I forgot to mention up top that's in this movie is Frankie Faison. And the reason why I must mention him is because every time there's a nigger from The Wire in <laughs> a movie that we're talking about, we have to mention it because I have a theory that three quarters of all black film and television will contain at least one nigger from The Wire. Fair. And uh, <laughs> Fair. what do we have in this film? As the landlord, Frankie Faison. It's so true. He's, they're a mad shit. They're a mad shit. That's so true. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. A toast. And a toast to, to the, the biggest from the Yeah, world. because they're in it. They did it. I'm with it. All right. <laughs> they be working. Um, question for you uh, in terms of comedies. What do you think is so special about comedies from that time period versus now that made them so special because you cited this film and House Party, which are both from that era. Mm -hmm. I know we both love Friday and there's just so many black comedy classics from then. So what do you think made them special? I think part of it is that they weren't being expected to appease everyone. Mm -hmm. I think that really changed things when it turned into like, we need everything to please everyone, specifically white people. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because like black films may not have been getting a lot of money in terms of like funding, but they were getting a lot of creative control to my knowledge. Um, and when white directors were even involved in black films at this time in terms of comedy, I feel like there was a respect for like the uniqueness of like black voices. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily changed. I don't feel like we're seeing black comedies anymore. Like the last true black comedy that I saw was Romney Malco's movie, um, uh, Tijuana Jackson from prison right. to purpose. Right. And that was the last black comedy that I saw that was a true Black comedy where, once again, every line was either a joke or advanced the script. And it did the job of performance, right? Because totally. that's the other problem that happens now yeah. where it's like the comedy like the comedy ends at the script. Yeah, I hate that. Like the script is just the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're not, so we're not reading, we're watching a movie. We're watching a movie. <laughs> so I think but but to that point, I think and maybe I'm just like romanticizing this, but I think that like people were also given more reign to perform. Totally. You know, like when we were watching Tommy Davidson do his thing, like he was really just Tommy Davidsoning. Like totally. we're watching Eddie whether it's in Boomerang, we're watching Eddie whether it's in Life or Harlem Nights like He's giving you, like, Martin Lawrence, great example. Like, yeah. 
Perfect example. They're 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 not just being comedians. Like they're being comedic performers. Like they're Absolutely. bringing actual performer expertise to the roles. And I just, I don't know. Like I mean, I mean, Insecure is a TV show. It's not a movie, but I will say, like, I feel like on Insecure, there was. Um, the writing was such an important part of the script that, I mean, not of just the script, above the show, like the preservation of the writing. But I, I feel like in the preserving of the writing, it didn't allow us to necessarily spread our wings as performers. Totally, um, totally. Because there's something in comedy where like just the improving of things does bring a whole other level. So like yes. Natasha would do that a lot, um, but she was one of the writers, so she was given more free reign to do that. But I just feel like, you know, I've, I feel like I would have enjoyed having the opportunity to like improv a bit more to bring absolutely a bit more energy to the character. But that just simply wasn't like their their methodology. But I think in these films... We're getting to see a lot of improv, which yes. also gave a lot more opportunity for character growth and performance. Absolutely. And through that process, you get a lot more of people being themselves, which becomes a much more honest performance, a much yeah. more fun performance. I mean, thinking about how much Chris Tucker improved in Friday, I mean, and those are some classic fucking gems, you know? Well, I think we're also dealing with like an era where we were seeing a lot of stand-up comedians yes. being funny on camera, like being characters versus just comedy actors, which yeah. is a different thing. It's different. It's different. You know, like For we're sure. talking about Arsenio Hall. We're talking about Eddie Murphy. We're talking about Chris Tucker. We're talking about Tommy Davidson. We're talking about Martin Payne. Like these are all, I mean, Martin Payne. We're talking about Martin Lawrence. Like <laughs> these are all like very like advanced comedians. Absolutely. So coming into that space and get as stand-up comedians, coming into that space and being given the like you know the carte blanche to bring that freeness that you get when that when you're on stage cuz that's what happens when you're on stage doing stand-up. Like you start just trying shit. Yeah. And then yeah. you all, and you land on gold every so often. Absolutely. And you have so much experience being funny as yourself. Mm-hmm. There may be like, of course, performative elements to this, but I mean, so is acting. Yeah. But to have, but to be so used to that, and then you turn the camera on, it's just there. You know, yep. there's kind of more of a finesse and an effortlessness to it. It's true. Or, or a seeming effortlessness. I mean, you do the work and then you show up and then it's just like, here we I'm are. I'm here. Yeah, naturally. You know? Um, something that I thought about when I was watching the movie this time is this interesting idea of the disconnect, the historical and intentional disconnect between Africans and African-Americans. Mm. And I'm wondering, as an Africana studies major yourself, what do you see in the movie that kind of reflects that? Well, I was an African-American studies major, which is a, a little different. I mean, we still had a diasporic um, methodology, but it's different than per se an Africana studies major where I would have had like classes specifically dedicated to In like Africa. certain African texts, right? Yeah, and African yeah. concepts, et cetera. But I will say like, I mean, I think, I think on one hand, 
there's the like, there's a generalization of like an like an elephant coming walk just mm-hmm. walking through, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. I think in the lens of now, some might have felt like this is appropriation, but then I feel like that's no more than like Wakanda, right? Totally. I agree. um, I feel like there was a respect paid to presenting this African nation as advanced, as, um, you know having their own royalty, having their own peacefulness, like, you know, shirking these, these stereotypical ideas of like, you know, developing nations when our, by the way, it's, it's recovering nations, um, you know, or like war torn, like, which we, which often is associated with like African countries. Right. Totally. So in the, in the spirit, I mean, Wakanda is kind of like in the spirit of Zamunda. Absolutely. For sure. Where it's like this is a imaginary African nation that is affluent, that is elevated in terms of like its um, its peoples, yeah. and and even in the in the effort to like make sure that everyone's costumes are still like you know paying reverence. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I don't know. Somebody might be listening to this who is actually from the continent and is just like appalled at what I'm saying, but <laughs> I don't mean to offend. I just, I, I'm very objective about things. And when I look at this film, like I don't, I don't feel like there's an effort to undermine I agree. the continent. Totally. Totally. I think there's a lot of moments. I think some people might feel like the accents. Yeah. And people felt that about Black Panther too. Just because it's a very but uh, it's generalized, generalized. Kind of that. But I would have felt a way if they didn't have some type of accent that was of notability to the continent. Like if they had totally. a British accent, you know, or like I don't, you know what I mean? So I think you kind of, um, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place in that regard. Absolutely. And there's, really interesting kind of subtle things that they do in the movie here by uh, (laughs) making me think of the song by Spin Doctors, Two Princes. Because (laughs) there are two princes. There's Prince Akeem, and then there's Eric LaSalle's character, who's the prince of the Soul Glow industry. I cannot believe you just referenced that song because I heard it the other day when I was at Sirius, (laughs) when I was about to record Smart Funny and Black Radio, and I was singing along, and I was like, why do I know all the words to this song? Because it slaps. It do. Wanted to call me, baby. But I was literally like, I I was like, why do, I'm like singing the ad list. I was like, wow. Again, rhythm. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, I mean, like, like, and seeing the cultural differences between the two and seeing what the two care about and seeing what the two think about each other and their cultures. I think it's a very interesting statement that is not necessarily made even in judgment, even though Eric LaSalle's character is like shitty. He's not the worst person in the world. He's just spoiled. He's, he's just Simi. Spoiled. He's, he's like Simi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, very weird thing that I noticed uh, in this film this time. There's a shot of Arsenio Hall by the door in which I said to myself, hmm, Arsenio Hall got cakes. 
And I did. Hilarious, hilarious. I did. Never hilarious. realized that. Now I, I will not. I can't unknow that now. And I end up on shows with him. I end up on stand-up sets with him. And now, thanks to you. I you can't unsee it. You cannot unsee it. And you've also met Eddie Murphy before, right? Oh. I met Eddie Murphy when I opened for Chris Rock at um a tour at his tour that he was doing out here in 2018. Mm-hmm. And I just am glad that he was not a prick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't a prick, and he was like, oh, me. He was like, yeah, I missed your set, but Chris said you're funny. Uh, what? Uh, I tell this story to anyone who will listen. <laughs> I tell this story to anyone who will listen. Because I'm just like, I can't even believe that Chris Rock and Eddie Murphy were like having a conversation about my stand-up. About Amanda Without Seals. me being present. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Did you happen to tell him how much you love this movie? I didn't even get, like, it wasn't even, like, that kind of, I just was smiling. Be, I was just like, ah, <laughs> And then he, like, walked off and you heard the, like, click clock of his Durango's hard bottom heels on the tile. Oh, my God. That is so funny. That is so funny. Yeah, I, this is a fucking classic comedy. It is an absolute classic. It is one of the best that we have, to be perfectly honest. I can't hate. Um, the The director was John Landis. He's a white guy, but he let them fly. He let their freak flag fly. And they really put in a legendary performance. I suggest everyone go watch the Netflix um, show, the movies that made us and see just like, you know, the type of stuff that was going on behind the scenes of making this classic film. It's in Mm -hmm. season three. Um, But I really, I really wish this style of movie would come back. Totally. I mean, they're not putting money behind these kinds of movies anymore. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And that's what, that to me is the real, you know, that's the real crime. Yeah. And Speaking of the 90s vibe, I love what you said about the fact that there was so much less of a care about what everyone else thought. And it was really just like some for us, by us shit. And I would love to get back into that arena. I would love that. You know, ultimately, the movies that are authentic to the characters are for everyone. Exactly. Like, a movie like Minari, like, you might be like, well, how am I going to, what part of a story about a Korean family moving to Alabama is going to speak to me? Uh, Everything, because it's Everything, yes. And then you watch it, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because we all have relationship dynamics, and we all have, you know, a certain level of ambition, or, or not, you know, right? We all have, like our own stories. And I just feel like when you watch an authentic story about an authentic person. Yeah. And even though this is a comedy and it is like larger than life in certain regards on its basic level, it is a love story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love the way that this film approaches black love. It is so 
sweet. Mm. It's so sweet. That's great. Sherry Headley's just a lovely gal. <laughs> she is. Who follows me on Instagram. <laughs> yes. Yes. And... You know, it's a travesty what they did with the second film, but we yeah. we carry on. Yeah. And it really um, is. we always still have this first film to carry. Yes, we film. do. Yes, we do. And did you know, fun fact, Vanessa Williams was considered for this role at some point of the role of Lisa. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't surprise me, but even if she's not Lisa, like she still ended up having one of the most iconic roles in film history. Exactly. In my opinion. Exactly. Whatever you like. <laughs> Fuck like a dog. Arp. Arp. A big dog. Oh, woof. Oh, woof. Oh, woof. I see you are getting along nicely. You know, I know only one black person who does not like this film, and that is my godmother. And she doesn't like it only because of that moment. Yeah, but it makes perfect sense. That moment is completely contextual. I agree. I agree. It does not... What they do with it in the second one doesn't feel good. But in the first one, seeing Akeem's reaction to her doing that really makes it and ties it all together. Right, because he's not okay with it. He's (laughs) not... Exactly. He's trying to, like, undo it. But, you know, sometimes I feel like people get too caught up... (laughs) That's just the end of the sentence. Sometimes exactly. Like people get too caught up. <laughs> Sometimes people get too caught up. Usher made a whole song about it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Uh, so in conclusion for this film, like I was saying, this is a beyond classic comedy. It is hilarious and incredibly well performed by its two leads, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, and certainly has had a ripple effect in Black culture and Black comedy films. It's also very endearing when Eddie is playing Akeem because they're... Yes! <laughs> the ripple effect. It's so endearing. Oh, my God. Wait, where'd you get those? Amanda just showed me these really great coasters. <laughs> these amazing Coming to America coasters. So... Oh my God. Incredible. Let me tell Incredible. you, my friend, my friend Karen had a coming to America wedding reception <gasps> and like came in to and then like had flower bears and uh, rose petal bears. And then like all of us, our tables had like the different characters on it and we were seated. At like I was seated at like uh, Akeem's table. My mom was seated at King Joffrey Joffre's table. Yes. So I, sorry to interrupt. I just looked oh, over no. and was like, "Oh, no. these are right here." <laughs> that sounds incredible. Uh, that also makes me remember that essentially that dance that everyone does in the beginning, and I noticed this when I was watching it, is apparently basically a sped up version of the Thriller choreography, and we were. <laughs> Which is funny because Mr. Landis also directed the Thriller video. So he's he's invited. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, I'm doing the choreo right now, y'all. Yes. <laughs> well, Desmond, um, thank you so much for yes. 
Again, breaking down yet another film and taking us on this adventure in black cinema. You can check out Adventures in Black Cinema wherever pods are casted. And also, like Desmond said, he is in New York City and you can come to screenings of classic films uh, at his movie theater that he works at and just, you know, programs, dope programming for us to come and take in. Because we got to keep cinema alive. We got to keep cinema alive. It's an art form. We got to keep showing reverence to. Um, You can also follow Desmond on these internets at Desmond Thorne and at Adventures in Black Cinema. And you can check out the You Better Act Award every week on Smartphone and Black's Patreon. So make sure you subscribe to our Patreon. And I just, again, want to commend you for your thoughtfulness when you are, when you are, you know, addressing these movies and, you know, peeling up the underpinning and really just getting into the goodness. Because to me, that's something that we just don't get to do enough of with black art because it feels like you were dissecting and like, we're trying to bring it down. It's like, no, we are making a meal out of it and, you know, pointing out that like maybe the tomatoes in this meal weren't necessary, but Ooh, the beef was just stewed to succulent perfection. Absolutely. If anything, that's uplifting the art, you know? I believe it. I agree. That's it. I'm gonna have to disagree with Viola. I think yeah. I think I think unconstructive I think unconstructive critics are pointless. Yes. Yes. Haters. There we go. There's that. <laughs> Yes. Well, I'm so glad we finally got to do this. We did it. We did it. A podcast network.